the validity of biomedical science and the efficacy therein falls on a steep and exponential power curve, such that only a very tiny minority of biomedical findings turn out to be true, and an even smaller subset of those turn out to be important. The vast majority of them do not do the things that we hope that they will do, if they do anything at all. Welcome to Clinical Appraisal, a podcast about nursing science with a focus on methodology. I'm your host, Ian Lane. All opinions shared are my own, and none of this information constitutes medical or nursing advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. If you would like to make a donation in support of my efforts to continue this show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. If you would like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Many people by now, especially after the late 2010s, know about something called the reproducibility crisis in psychological research. Yet for some reason, people don't necessarily ascribe the same type of problem to biomedicine. And I don't know precisely where this stems from. I have a a suspicion that it relates at least in part to the social capital and cultural prestige awarded to physicians and biomedical scientists for the work they do, whether or not the work warrants it. Now, occasionally it does. There are occasionally, although infrequently, pieces of evidence that transform the landscape of human health. For example, uh, vaccine technology has transformed human life. Public health interventions like the development and accessibility of clean water for most humans has absolutely had a profound impact on longevity. There's good reason to think that tertiary care and the treatment of complex trauma patients or intensive care for similar levels of patient complexity is absolutely crucial, and that the so-called westernized way of practicing medicine has actually been, um, to say it's invaluable might even be to undervalue just how important it is. And one would anticipate, and they would be correct, that because of my chosen training path, I obviously believe in many of these things. On the other hand, as a research methodologist I find that many people don't really think through thoroughly what they would have to see in the biomedical literature in order to confer efficacy of the thing that they're reading, whatever the treatment effect is purported to be. So back in 2005, John Ioannidis from Stanford University who's a professor of medicine and epidemiology there and a meta-researcher, which means that he researches the research process itself. He and his team published a now infamous paper entitled Most Biomedical Research Findings Are False. And by false, he simply meant that the reproducibility crisis is a real problem in medicine and health sciences as well. And This has been cited an unfathomably large number of times in the world of scientific citations. Most people could never dream of all of their publication list generating that many citations, as many as this singular paper has amassed. And it's interesting to me, again, that the public now largely understands that Most, for example, in particular, social psychological research studies are not replicable, let alone reproducible. And if you don't understand offhand what the difference is, replicability has to do with the ability to replicate a study design, 
reproducibility has to do with after you've replicated the study and rerun that study, you were able to reproduce the findings of the initial study upon which yours was built. There are often not enough replication studies done in biomedicine, and it's a similar problem as that which was faced in psychology and is still being faced in many subdisciplines of psychology. But biomedicine has a similar set of problems, and Dr. Unites and his team found and published on that set of problems, and yet this does not seem to make headlines. In fact, we still get headlines constantly about some new diet that produces miraculous levels of weight loss or some new drug that does this, this, or that thing that we're told in a scientific press briefing that it does, and we accept it on face value. But we did the same thing with the early social psychological research that's now been debunked. So why is this? Well, I did talk about this a little bit, but I think that there is an undue social and cultural prestige that is awarded to physicians and biomedical scientists. And it's not that they're not doing important things or that their work might not be life-changing, earth-shattering work, because it could quite possibly be so. It's difficult to predict what research will be important, but that's a different question than having already completed the research and then finding out that it's weak, or it's invalid, or it's unreliable, or it used the wrong measures, or it employed the wrong methods, or it used the entirely wrong design. All of these things and more are more common than I can even begin to express to you. And again, that's not to denigrate the biomedical science that has shaped human health in such a way as to improve longevity and health span. But just as with anything else, the validity of biomedical science and the efficacy therein falls on a steep and exponential power curve, such that only a very tiny minority of biomedical findings turn out to be true, and an even smaller subset of those turn out to be important. But if you think about the total number of biopharmaceutical and surgical treatment options in biomedicine for various health conditions, we are talking about thousands upon thousands of interventions. And the level of faith that people have in the efficacy and the safety of these types of medical interventions has been astounding to me as I think about that, because those thousands upon thousands of medical interventions, most of them don't work. The vast majority of them do not do the things that we hope that they will do, if they do anything at all. Many of them are harmful, and the idea again, in an ideal sense, would be that if they are effective, then we can put up with a small amount of harm as a byproduct in the form of an adverse event, for example. And if the weight of the pro versus the con has the ratio in favor of the pro or the benefits, then all is well with the world. But this is not the case more often than not. And Dr. Ioannidis and his team did a fabulous job exposing this in their 2005 paper. But why has this not caught on? And what are the state of things now? Well, I am not going to discuss the history or the current affairs of medical evidence versus medical eminence at the present time. I think that would make for a good podcast interview with somebody who is an expert in that area, and I am not. But what I will talk about is the thing that I do know something about, which is methodological quality based on the data and the design. It has always shocked me just how much trust people put in the findings that are put in press releases about studies. Let me give you an example. Imagine that you're reading a press briefing about a weight loss study, and the press briefing says something akin to diet X produces significant weight loss in the experimental group compared to controls. And we'll just posit that this is a parallel group randomized control 
design. Very simple, two-group, parallel arm design. There's a control group. There is some reasonably simple diet that the other group, let's say, hypothetically is following. And let's say they're actually following it, which we know most people are not. But suppose they are. And suppose everything was done flawlessly. So this thought experiment is such that the control group did everything that they normally do as exactly as they normally do it, which doesn't happen. Control groups modify their behavior as well. And then let's assume that the experimental arm did this diet perfectly and tracked everything perfectly that could be verified by the study team, which also doesn't happen. And there is frequently a significant regression to the mean in both arms. And you can sort of control for some of these things statistically, but again, not the point. And let's say that it's even a physiologically relevant concept, this diet. I don't know what it would be. Uh, let's say somebody's interested in the effect of polyphenols on weight loss. I have no idea if that would be relevant, but I am almost 100% positive you could find me a study with a parallel group randomized trial design looking at polyphenols and weight loss. And I suspect now I'll probably get three of them in my inbox in an hour. Um, so they run this study and they find that there is a change in weight. There is a delta between pre and post in the change in body weight between groups. Let's say they even looked at anthropometrics in such a way that they used, somehow they had the money to use DEXA, and they looked at body fat mass in a way that was a scientifically rigorous, which DEXA is. It is the gold standard in this space. So taking all of this into consideration and imagining that it is indeed the case that we have sufficient reason to think the study was well done and the results are valid and reliable. And let's say it's even a replication study of something that was done before as a pilot study. Okay, have I made the case enough that this is a decent project? Now we have to look at the result. So you're reading a press briefing, which is not the actual study. So then hopefully the press briefing will link to the study we have in mind. You visit the link that takes you to the study and you read this. And then you're talking about this with a friend after and they say, well, what do you mean by this was a statistically significant weight loss. What does that mean? And of course, because you know, you're know you not a cyborg, you have to actually go back and look at the paper. So to appease your friend, you say something like, well, you know, I, I don't know the exact number, but I know that there was a big enough difference between the groups that you could show that there was a statistically reliable difference in weight loss, such that the experimental group lost significantly more weight than the other arm. Here's what I'm getting at. The point that I am actually trying to make here is quite simple, which is what do you mean by there was a statistically significant difference between groups? Well, you could go into that by trying to answer what statistically significant is and get into alpha values and statistical hypothesis testing, but that's not the point. Or you could go into the differences between statistical and practical significance. Or you could accept the significance value and ask what's the magnitude of that effect. But let's propose for the moment that the alpha value is appropriately chosen and that the statistical significance is appropriate to be able to draw reliability conclusions from these data and the sample size was big enough, yada, yada. And let's look instead at the latter two, the first of which being the difference between practical and statistical significance in this case, and finally layering on that the magnitude of effect. Now, technically, we have to do that in reverse, actually, because the practicality comes as a result of the magnitude of the effect, right? The clinical significance in this case is a function of how large the effect is. Now, suppose that you have a large enough sample and you have such a good study with no missing data and everything was perfect and you found a p-value of 0.005, fairly statistically significant result, very unlikely to be due by chance. So you have a reliable estimate, it's statistically significant, 
but let's say it's only 1.5 pounds. You can have a small difference that is statistically significant. You can even have a very small difference in terms of the overall delta that is highly statistically significant. You might find in some sense in some study that there is a one pound change between arms that is so statistically significant that is very unlikely to be due by chance and has a p-value of 0.0001 or whatever. Now my question to you is, does that matter to you? Suppose that you are the clinician that is caring for an individual who is attempting to lose weight or change their lifestyle or whatever the case is, and they ask you what I should do, and you say, well, there's this recent diet study that shows significant difference in weight between these groups with this type of intervention. Would it be important to you as their clinician that it's only a one pound difference with, let's say, a standard deviation of 0.3 pounds. I think the vast majority of us would concede that a one pound change in body weight, in body fat even, is so insignificant clinically that the practical significance of this finding is irrelevant, despite the highly statistically significant result that we have found. Now this is a separate problem from the truth or falsity of the research per se, because it could be that maybe later on we find out that there were some p-hacking things happening here, or maybe we find out that there was something wrong with, there was something flawed with the analyses, or, you know, we are sort of taking it on faith based on the report that things were great. What if we find out what, you know, something had been fabricated and one of the co-investigators you know, like, whatever, you never know what, what, what might happen. Let's say instead that everything was perfect, flawless. And, you know, two months later, this study was replicated, but the findings were not reproducible. And then we find out that the file drawer problem is there. And actually that there, there is a null result based on attempts to meta analyze these types of data. In research, there's a distinction to be made between the eventual falsity demonstrated depending on some hitherto unknown factor of a study result and our current ability to interpret that study result in terms of statistical reliability and practical and clinical significance. And one of the most important elements of the latter is our ability to look at the magnitude of effect and determine not only is this reliable statistically, but is it big enough to matter. And in terms of weight loss studies, I can't tell you how many weight loss studies I've looked at, whether they be diet studies or exercise studies that show some statistically significant value. But the value is, you know, a delta of 0.2 pounds per week for 18 weeks in the case of exercise or 2.2 kilos, which is just over four pounds of weight lost in, let's say, six weeks in some pilot study. And the question is, of course, is that important to you? Is it important to you as a person who is interested in losing weight or burning some body fat? And for our purposes as clinicians, is it important enough for you, for your patient, who you're trying to prevent an exacerbation of their type 2 diabetes by gaining more weight, or in this case, preventing it by trying to lose more weight? Maybe five pounds of weight loss is significant and important. And maybe that's worth it for somebody. Five pounds, after all, is five pounds. But is one pound? I mean, what's the cutoff for this is no longer important? Now, that really depends on you. It depends on your patient, I guess, if you're the clinician. And it depends on your conversation together, uh, determining what's of value for that individual case. But it would seem, based on my experience, and I think most people would agree, that a one pound body weight change after some significant lifestyle alteration, I don't know how significant this polyphenol intervention would be for somebody per se, but who knows? It's still uprooting one element of your life and making a change to that one facet of your being for six weeks or eight weeks. And 
I mentioned the standard deviation of 0.3 pounds, you might be one of those people that has a 0.7 pound weight loss after six weeks on this. Is that worth it to you? Because there is a range of possible outcomes. Obviously, 67% somewhere in the middle between 0.7 and 1.3 in this hypothetical case, but it's still a matter of, of mere ounces. I know for myself, at the times in my life where I have had any substantial weight to lose and wanted to for health-related reasons, for example, as my weight increases, I tend to have worsening of obstructive sleep apnea, and when my weight decreases, my sleep apnea improves. And there's evidence that this is a nonlinear function, so that if somebody loses, let's say, 10 to 15% of their body weight, they could cut their apneic episodes in half. 10% weight change, reducing apneic episodes during sleep by 50% is an enormous benefit. But 10% of weight loss, if you are 200 pounds, is 20 pounds. If I lost 2 pounds, that might be clinically irrelevant, but statistically significant. Now, this episode of the podcast is not about statistical significance per se. We could do an entire podcast, and I may do an entire podcast on that question. Like, what is it? How is it defined? Yada, yada. Um, hypothesis testing, the need for it, the arguments behind its, its being deemed unnecessary. That would make for an interesting episode, at least to my mind. Um, I think it's just a complicated one to figure out how to start and make interesting <laughs> for people. Um, then again, I guess if you're listening to a null hypothesis statistical significance testing episode, you're probably in that sphere already enough to want to listen to it or orbiting the horizon, the event horizon of statistics in such a way that you'll hopefully glean something of value from it. All of that aside, the point of today's episode is not about statistical significance per se, but it's really about practical significance and the magnitude of effects and how regardless of whether or not biomedical interventions are deemed statistically significant, even in good analyses, Often, they don't actually work in any meaningful way that would be important for people and their health. And, you know, I use diet and weight loss. That's, you could make the case that that's a biomedical intervention, and some people would absolutely make that case. I might make the case that that's a kind of broader health science intervention or a lifestyle intervention Um but regardless of how you would choose to define that type of thing, let's pick something more local to biomedicine. Let's say we want to look at an antihypertensive drug and we want to look at its effect on blood pressure. You conduct the perfect multi-million dollar study from Big Pharma, approved by the FDA, funded from the NIH. Let's say the study is designed beautifully and as free of economic and other biases as is possible to be. Let's say it's even triple blinded. It's blinded from the investigators, from the individuals receiving the drug, so it's placebo controlled, and also blinded, thirdly, to the statisticians, the analysts. Let's say the study is run, and there is a statistically significant drop in systolic blood pressure with a new or novel derivative of an old antihypertensive agent. The reality in medical research today is that if you publish a new study on a novel antihypertensive that has a statistically significant effect at reducing blood pressure and can be marketed and will be marketed towards some particular population or subgroup of a population of people, and that this new drug will probably make several hundred million dollars over the course of X number of years, you can be sure that it will be sold as powerfully effective. Again, I want to reiterate, as I mentioned when I first started the episode, we were talking initially about false results. I'm talking now about results that are true, question mark, and yet, on the other hand, are sort of irrelevant. 
that, you know, when I say don't work, that biomedical interventions on the whole generally don't work, except for a small handful that lie along a power curve at the tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a minority of interventions that are extraordinarily important. What I mean by that, not important or not powerful or not effective, it's the magnitude of the efficacy result. So this drug gets manufactured, it's sold, makes millions and millions and millions of dollars, only to reduce systolic blood pressure by six millimeters of mercury. And then suppose that there's a retrospective analysis later by some epidemiologist that looks at pharmacoepidemiology and finds that the overall effect on total mortality, so the time to event analysis between initially instituting the new drug and succumbing to your atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease as a function of, of chronic hypertension. Let's say the analyst looks, that epidemiologist looks at the difference, the delta between the two Kaplan-Meier curves and finds that actually there is very little difference and that even if there is a difference, let's say that it cuts your risk of dying early by 15 days. If you have to take a drug that has minimal effect, that it has similar side effect profiles to other antihypertensives, let's say similar to an ACE inhibitor, it makes you cough, and maybe you have an idiopathic cough that impacts your quality of life, your health-related quality of life, and let's say you take this drug religiously for 25 years, starting in your 40s, and let's say you have a long family history of cardiovascular disease and early cardiovascular mortality, you know, early as in in your 60s, and then you unfortunately have a cardiac event and pass away in your late 60s, which is right around the time that your family lineage typically has in the past succumbed to their own cardiovascular events. And let's say that somebody, that you are part of a cohort that is analyzed and it finds that you religiously took this medication, it definitively, let's say you, you could prove that, I mean, I don't know that you could, but let's say you could prove that it definitively reduced your systolic blood pressure by six millimeters of mercury on average and kept it there, plateaued consistently for most of those years that you took the medication and that you stayed in a reasonable range with some fluctuation, but not much outside the, the norm, all the way up until the day that you passed. So you're in this cohort, the cohort is analyzed, and the analysis finds that as a function of you taking this medication, you have lived 15 days longer than you would have if you did not take the medication. I do not consider that to be an important effect. Maybe some people would. Let's say it's a month. Let's say it's two months. Is that a lot? I mean, maybe. And it depends. You know, two months when you're 15 years old is a very different story than two months when you're 70 years old. At least I think I, I believe that. And I think a lot of people would agree. Uh, I could be wrong, but, you know, to each their own. I think that it's nice to look at these results and think to ourselves, we have a drug that's effective or at least efficacious at reducing systolic blood pressure, which when elevated can contribute to atherosclerotic lesions and eventually to atherosclerotic cardiovascular death in later life. And ideally, these drugs would make a dent in that disease process and keep us living much longer. But if you were to find out that it's half a month longer, would that be enough for you to take the medication religiously for the almost the entirety of your life to be beholden to it and to contend with whatever side effects or adverse event profiles were associated with that new drug? Because there, there is no such thing as a, a side effect free medication. Even nutraceuticals have their own side effect profiles at some threshold or other. And so here's the point. The point is we think we can outsmart Mother Nature. We think we have the tools necessary to manipulate biopharmacology in such a way that we can extend life. And those who study longevity find that actually it's very difficult to do that. And 
the ways in which they're doing that with things like the mammalian target of rapamycin or with playing with AMP kinase pathways and insulin-like growth factor pathways and, you know, used to be things like resveratrol supplementation and, you know, caloric restriction is the big one in animals. Whether or not those things translate to human beings is an entirely different question. And whether or not once they do translate, they'll have an effect even remotely to the level, to the magnitude that we're seeing in experimental laboratory animals is another. And they may have nothing whatever to do with one another. Now, I'm partial to the idea that we have a lot to learn from this area of research, but then there's an even bigger leap to be made, which is to say that our biomedical interventions at present, our pharmacologic and surgical interventions, have anywhere near the effect that those anti-aging and longevity interventions in laboratory animals are having on their lifespan, that those things would have on our lifespan. And it's silly to me when we look at the results of things like this and we find, okay, so uh, an antihypertensive might, and, I, and again, please note, I'm making this up, but, but suppose that there's a new ACE inhibitor that reduces your blood pressure by six millimeters of mercury on average systolic. And let's say that, you know, instead taking up a walking regimen or exercising regularly with a little bit of intensity three times a week will reduce your blood pressure systolic by 15 millimeters of mercury. Now, maybe that will only extend your lifespan by three months. Again, I'm making that up. I have no idea if that's true. And maybe that's not enough for you either. And maybe, and I'm not trying to make you pessimistic or cynical here. I'm just trying to make you think or to let us think about this out loud. Because there is this tacit understanding that biomedical interventions are inherently perceived as efficacious, and they're often marketed that way, and there's often a social capital um, element to that, uh, to the degree to which that is embraced by society. And some of it is wishful thinking, I would, I would add. Personally, I think that that's probably some element of the variance. All that is just to say... When we look at these interventions, some of them, again, a very tiny, tiny fraction of a minority at the tail end of the distribution, are effective, and some of them are powerfully effective. But the vast majority in the area under the curve, under the rest of the curve, do nothing. There is a point at which the effect is so close to zero that it does not matter. My question to you is, what are the things that you are doing and the things that you are inviting patients to do that might fall somewhere along that thicker tail of the distribution? And it's not because I want you to think about stopping those things because I have no desire in influencing your decisions to do something one way or the other. Uh, the only decisions I am interested in influencing are your decisions about how to interpret and analyze clinical research. But I do think it's important to me, in some sense, to impress upon people this sense that we have that intrinsically biomedical interventions are important and powerful and efficacious, that we should question that, because most of the time, that's wrong. And you can tell that it's wrong, not by taking the word of myself or John Ioannidis. And I mean, God forbid I put myself in the same bin as John Ioannidis, but, um, but just because I'm the one sort of articulating this podcast episode, I just think that it's not really about our perspectives, our opinions, even the evidence that we show. It's about you reading the research with a critical eye and looking at the magnitude of effect and the clinical significance therein. And you, for yourself, as a clinician or a scholar, reviewing and interpreting clinical research, to be able to say for yourself, they've told me in the abstract that this is statistically significant, but is it practically significant? Now, you may have to know a little bit about statistical analysis and interpretation to be able to make some of the claims you would like to make when you read research, and you should, because how can you translate a body of knowledge to your patients if you don't understand the clinical research? But putting that aside for a moment, 
you need to be able to look at the results section, look at the table, look at the weight change or the change in systolic blood pressure in these two cases that I presented, and determine for yourself if, irrespective of their statistical significance, if they are also clinically or practically significant, and what impact that change would have on your patients. And let's say that the median change is a systolic blood pressure differential of six millimeters of mercury, but that the standard deviation is two millimeters of mercury. And so some people are getting a four millimeter of mercury change and some people are getting eight. And some people are getting much less than that. And so there's obviously a normal Gaussian curve associated with this particular change for the most part, most likely. Um, but you need to be able to look at that result and say, well, is a six millimeter of mercury difference important enough for my patients after three months on this drug for me to actually want to prescribe this or for me as a, let's say, an RN to educate the patient about this particular finding and help them understand for themselves from a self-management perspective what this means. Lastly, because at this point in the conversation, I'm talking primarily, but not exclusively to clinicians or clinical scholars who are trying to understand and possibly even translate the body of literature in the biomedical and nursing and health sciences to their patients. I want to express something that I've been thinking about putting on the podcast for a while, and I've probably alluded to this before in some sense. But I think a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate this to the degree that I wish they would, which is that the critical appraisal of research is a skill unto itself, and it is a research-based skill that clinical scholars desperately need to develop. And it is different than the ability to conduct research. And this is why I've frequently debated the need for, let's say, DNPs to get statistical training as well, because if the DNP is designed to translate clinical knowledge from the bench to the bedside, as it were, in nursing, and this would apply, of course, to physical therapists, DPTs, or MDs or DOs um, who are not researchers per se, or you know who are not themselves conducting clinical research, any of these professionals could become PIs and clinical researchers, but then they needn't be PIs per se, to learn these methods. And I think that they should learn these methods. It's an imperative. And it's incumbent on you to learn these methods for one very, very important reason, which is that if you're going to understand the current state of the literature in your space, your clinical, clinical area of expertise, and then translate that, you have to understand what it means. But in order to understand what it means, you have to understand the research design. It doesn't have to be perfect, but you do have to know what's the research question that they were asking and how did they try to answer that research question and is it valid? And ideally, you would also have the ability to, in some sense, not just read the abstract, which you can't do and then understand those things anyway um, and infer a conclusion, but actually look at the results of that investigation and then say, based on some fundamental statistical training, understand what that p-value is telling you, what that effect size is telling you, what kind of effect size it is. What is that graph that you're looking at? Is it just a scatter plot looking at an R value, a Pearson correlation or something else? Um, a bar chart, is that helpful for you for determining some particular thing? Are you looking at a Kaplan-Meier curve and a survival curve or a time to event analysis? These things are not particularly hard. Sometimes it feels like it because the language is, it almost feels different. It feels like a foreign language, but it's not that difficult. You just have to persist and don't let a whole group of people who are trying to be gatekeepers to clinical research keep you out of the loop as clinical scholars by trying to pretend to you that it's much harder than it is. I'm not saying that conducting research is easy because it's not. It's very difficult to do well, and a lot of people do not do it well. But it is not so hard that a group as intelligent as yourselves could not, at the very least, appraise it critically. And the appraisal of research is a different, albeit 
overlapping and related skill. And here's why I say that. It's often harder to critically appraise a completed research study than it is to decide in a stepwise fashion what the research project ought to look like. And it's harder because you have to work backward. And here's what I mean. If you read a research article, it is very rare that the researcher will say, we did a cluster randomized trial, you know, nesting our randomization within two different institutions and two subgroups in each, you know, nesting two subgroups in each arm. And so therefore, like, they don't often do that. I mean, some will, in an ideal world, they would do that and they would have it laid out in their national registration of clinical trials document, if it's a clinical trial. But many people still don't think to put their stuff in NRT. And even if they do, things change across the course of the study and you have to be able to pick that up. But the hard part is that because most people don't write exactly explicitly what they are trying to do and what they did to try to answer that research question, you have to backfill that information. You have to not only understand what research design looks like and what types of studies can answer what types of questions, you have to look at their research question and then think to yourself based on the reading their methods like, oh, well this was their research question. And now I understand what their dependent and independent variables are and the levels, if there are any. And they described sort of what they did in a roundabout kind of way. I have to now piece together what type of study design is that? And is that study design even appropriate for this research question with this sample? And sometimes it is, but many times it's not. Imagine you're reading a research study that is a clinical trial design, and you find out as you're reading that both, that let's say there are two groups and both groups get the intervention. Well, you need to know that that's a crossover design. You need to know that there are carryover effects. You need to know what type of intervention this is in the event that those carryover effects are a realistic possibility. And depending on the washout period in between, how likely is it that it's still affecting the other group and diluting the results? And if the authors don't tell you explicitly that this is a randomized crossover trial, you need to be able to infer that. The inference in the reading, especially because it's dependent on the way the writers write, is actually extraordinarily difficult. So you have to have a handle so good on the design of clinical research when you're reading. This is what makes it so difficult because it's even challenging for people who are researchers, who identify as researchers that actually conduct scientific research studies because they have to do the same kind of thing. But because they're so focused on doing their thing, they're usually reading explicitly within their domain of expertise, typically with very, very similar methods. But when you're a clinician, you have to read widely and understand a very broad territory of research, which lends itself to an ever-expansive domain of research methods. Sometimes I think that I will say things like this and it will make people feel I hope that this is not the case, but that it it could lend itself to making people feel a bit at a loss, as though there's no way they can learn this stuff, that it's too complex. They didn't do this to become researchers. And to that I would say, you're not becoming a researcher, you're becoming a critical thinker. And to have more faith in your own abilities, your own ability to persist motivationally, and your own cognitive ability, if you are a clinical scholar, a clinical expert, you have the intelligence and the perseverance to be able to learn anything you want. And this is no exception to that. If you want to be a truly excellent clinical scholar, you have to be willing to pay closer and closer and closer attention over time to these types of problems and get better and better at this. It does not happen overnight. In fact, I frequently revisit old things that I've written or old documents that I've reviewed. And I think to myself, you know, that's not totally dumb, but mostly I would have interpreted this in a very different way now. But the point is that you're growing over time. 
you're always going to improve. You might as well start now, because not only will you improve, but your patients hypothetically will hopefully improve along with you as you learn more and your ability to properly interpret from the literature improves. Now, some people listening who are researchers might say, well, why do we want to do that when the research should speak for itself? And I would say the research does not speak for itself. As a researcher, your study is sometimes, not always, and maybe not yours per se, but you know it happens, beholden to economic forces, let's say, and financial biases, and federal and other stakeholder influences and input, um, the way in which the paper is written, the things that are omitted from the writing of the manuscript, the things that are added to the writing of the manuscript, which are confabulatory in some sense, some of the time, the forces motivating research are often financial. They're often um, the attempts to get tenure at a university. And if you're a clinical scholar, you don't necessarily, although sometimes, but mostly you don't care about those things. You're trying to figure out what's best for your patient. If the PI is trying to get tenure and they have to frame something in a particular way and then put in a footnote somewhere else that actually this article that we cited says this thing, but we think X, Y, or Z, and nobody ever finds that. Do you get what I'm saying? I recognize that this is sort of a, a convoluted path that I'm laying out here, but it's a, it's a common path. And what I'm trying to say is twofold in this episode. I'd like to summarize those two things now so that I don't continue to ramble ineffectually. One is that not only are most research findings eventually proven false through meta-analytic endeavors and retrospective analyses later on, and better and better randomized trials, let me add, that's probably the most important thing, is that when those things are actually done, we find that, oh, well, this effect wasn't actually a parachute to begin with. Most of our biomedical interventions end up proving themselves wrong in the end, and yet we dispose patients to laundry lists of side effects and adverse event profiles, most of the time all for naught, but some of the time for very minuscule effects that may not persist and may not have a lasting impact on the total time to mortality or morbidity. And secondly, it's crucial that the clinical scholar develop the skills to critically appraise research for two reasons. One, you can't explicitly trust everything that is published. Not because the attempt to be trustworthy is not there, or that the effort to be transparent and truthful was not met, because often that's not the case. Typically, it's because of the total number of biases, the way that things are framed in the results, the analyses, and the way that statistical analytic tools are manipulated to be able to generate certain types of results. And therefore, you as the clinician need to understand that you have two responsibilities. One, you have to be able to translate research soundly and safely to your patients in order to be a competent and safe clinician. On the other hand, in order to translate scientific research effectively, you actually have to understand pretty deeply and widely research methods, because when you read a research study, you have to piece together in backward fashion how they conducted that study, how the design was built, and how the statistical analyses were run. You don't have to understand in detail how to do a factorial analysis, for example, or run a multiple regression by hand, but you do need to know that if somebody does a multiple regression analysis of a weight loss study and the average effect was 1.6 pounds of weight loss and your patient has 55 pounds to lose and type 2 diabetes that is uncontrolled or poorly controlled and the R squared value, the coefficient of determination, shows that only half of the variance is ascribed to whatever dietary approach they did anyway, 
which means that less than a pound of that weight change is going to be a function of that diet anyway. Are you going to tell based on the study design that you're reading and your understanding as a professional, as a clinician of this data? Are you going to then tell your patients to start doing this thing because the conclusion of the paper says this is effective? No. And it's because you have this deeper, broader understanding of the literature in your domain of expertise clinically and this newfound capacity to piece together what exactly this research is, what they did, how they tried to answer this question, you're going to be a safer, more competent, more expert clinician as a function of that. Stop letting people tell you that research is so hard and it's such a an insider's game that you can't be a part of it. Critical appraisal is its own and a separate but overlapping skill. And try not to take at face value the idea that all biomedical interventions are created equal. They're not. The vast majority of them don't do anything. So we need to be skeptical. And in order for you, a clinical scholar and practice expert, to be skeptical, you have to have the right to be skeptical, which means you have to understand what you are reading. Thanks for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare and review the show on your favorite listening app. If you'd like to donate to support the show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. And if you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, or if I've reviewed a paper you are an author on and you would like to join me for an episode, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.